This is Habonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Habonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. For many immigrants, the chosen path to the American dream is small business entrepreneurship. Owing to their often limited wealth and community resources, these aspiring business owners may choose to locate in the most affordable cities and neighborhoods where rents are low and local crime is often high. This precarious challenge to offer otherwise underserved communities useful goods and services, such as groceries, haircutting, and convenience items, means they must also suffer the risk of the attending crime that occurs near their establishment. Such was the case for Yuyen Fan, an immigrant from Vietnam who started her own nail salon in Randolph, Massachusetts, less than 10 years after coming to the US, and who bought the building in which her salon had been renting three years later. To her horror, three months into her ownership, an assassination-style murder took place outside the entrance to one of her commercial tenants, leading the victim's family to sue her for liability. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court recently heard the case of Norvella Hill Juneas v. UTP Realty, LLC, and rendered a decision on August 16th, which will serve to define the limits of liability for small business owners and landlords across the Commonwealth. What is the legal responsibility to entrepreneurs for third-party crimes that occur near their business? And were the court to find for the plaintiffs in such cases, what would be the likely effect on high-crime neighborhoods if the cost and risk of doing business becomes more than the local entrepreneurs can endure? My guest today is president of Pioneer Public Interest Law Center and retired United States judge, the Honorable Frank J. Bailey, who, along with his colleagues at Pioneer, submitted an amicus curie brief in the Hill Juneas v. UTP Realty case supporting Ms. Fan, the defendant. Judge Bailey will share with us the facts and findings of the case and discuss the implication of the judge's rulings to the small business community at large. He will also explain the arguments in Pioneer's amicus brief on the way in which the principles addressed in this case speak to the value and vulnerabilities of America's new immigrant entrepreneurs and their importance to the communities they serve. When I return, I'll be joined by President of Pioneer Public Interest Law Center, retired federal judge, Frank Bailey. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by the president of Pioneer Public Interest Law Center and retired United States Judge, the Honorable Frank J. Bailey. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Judge Bailey. Thank you, Joe. I'm I'm delighted to be here. All right. Well, before uh, we're going to talk about some important uh, an important case that was recently decided by uh, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. But before we go there, uh, in our intro, I, I identified you as the president of. Uh, Pioneers Public uh, Interest Law Center. Um, what does the new law center do? So we're focused on um, basically three areas uh, of interest. Um, uh, school choice. And so we would bring lawsuits on behalf of children or families that have been denied an opportunity to, to attend the school of their choice. Um, open government, uh, meaning that uh, if government in some fashion, you know, either at a meeting or a hearing uh, interferes with uh, the ability of a particular citizen to be heard. Um, and third is equal um, economic opportunity. Uh, so uh, in the event that government over restricts or 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 uh, or this case is a very good example of where we think that a court opinion uh, could negatively impact um 
economic opportunity for a particular group of individuals. Yeah, my, I, um, when we had you on last, uh, we talked about uh, your work trying to protect uh, homeowners who are perhaps uh, low income or few assets they may owe with taxes uh, to the government, and that house is is taken, sold, and all the proceeds go to the government and none to the uh, homeowner. You uh, wrote an advocacy brief that was ultimately decided the Supreme Court in favor of the homeowner and the justice, you know, the, the non-taking uh, of, of those monies. Uh, so in a sense, you're sort of in the David and Goliath where government is is Goliath. You're on the side of David. That's fair to say. You know, that case is a good example of, you know, how uh, that, that was the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, so we're still deeply involved with applying the outcome of that case to Massachusetts and to 12 other states where equity taking uh, is uh, is continuing. Um, although. Maine recently changed its statute. Massachusetts, I testified at the House uh, and Senate Joint Committee on that issue. So Massachusetts is likely to make a change uh, as soon as the legislature can get to it. So, yes, that's right. So you have a real world impact on, uh, on let's say, the less fortunate people who uh, may get a, uh, the, the raw end of the stick from the government. So let's uh, let's shift our focus to the, the case at hand. We're going to be talking about the the facts and the details in a case, um, I'm going to call it Hill Junaez is the plaintiff uh, versus UTP Realty LLC. Um, this is a case recently heard and decided by uh, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Uh, for our listeners, just give us in broad view, in broad uh, strokes, what are the uh, facts in this particular case? Well, it, it's it, an interesting case, a very sad and unfortunate case. But um, uh, in, in this case, uh, Ms. Fan, Yuen Fan, is a uh, Vietnamese uh, person born in Vietnam, uh, came here in 2013, uh, and uh, she, like so many immigrants, you know, opened her own business, a small business, which was a nail parlor in Randolph, Massachusetts. In, uh, and uh, after operating it for a period of time in a, what we call in the record, vindicates is uh, somewhat of a rundown uh, shopping plaza. Um, uh, she was on the first floor of the plaza and on the bottom floor opening to the back is a nightclub. And after she operated there successfully for a time, Ms. Fan decided that she should protect her lease and protect her then successful business. And so uh, in 2015, she purchased the property. Really remarkable kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, she comes here and a few years later, she owns uh, a commercial real estate uh, in in the Commonwealth. Um, uh, so that's the location. What brings us to court uh, is that uh, three months after she closed on her purchase, uh, a fellow named uh, Drake Scott um, was literally executed uh, in the common area, or it's not even the common area, it was actually on the a right of way in back of the property um, by uh, an individual named Mr. Wright, I believe his name is, um, I may have that wrong, but, uh, and uh, he was shot to death. Um, and uh, this uh, nightclub that operated in the basement of her then building, right? So now she owns this plaza, and three months later, there's this execution murder out back. Uh, and uh, uh, the name of that bar was City Limits. Uh, 
Um, it had multiple security guards um, in the location. Uh, they scanned everybody or patted them down or something to make sure that anybody who came in uh, did not have any weapons. Um, and during the evening, apparently some of the security folks were told by some other patrons that perhaps this Mr. Wright, I believe his name is, um, had a grudge against uh, the uh, decedent uh, and that he was going to take vengeance on him. Uh, and in fact, they called the police. Uh, the police were in the right away when this happened. But after they all left and the bar closed, uh, in fact, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Drake uh, Scott was was murdered, as I've described. Um, okay. All right. The, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So we we got the basic facts. We've got um, a, a, a re relatively new immigrant who opens a salon and after a certain period of time buys the property where her salon is. That property also has a nightclub in it. Uh, you called it the uh, uh, um, city limit uh, saloon. Uh, a terrible crime happens outside. And uh, what brings them to court is that uh, the estate, or essentially the parent of the decedent, the victim, uh, sues the landlord for liability, uh, suggesting that as a landlord, uh, she had some duty to uh, ensure that such things don't happen in or near her property. Um, you know, is that the basic con contours of the suit? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's interesting that, as is so often the case in these matters, uh, it appears that city limits didn't have any insurance or had let it lapse or something. And so when they sued city limits, they weren't able to, uh, it was not a likely uh, candidate for them to recover. And so uh, they knew that Ms. Fan uh, did have liability insurance. And so they brought the lawsuit against her. Uh, and uh, and they argued that uh, under the law, Ms. Fan, a commercial property owner, um, had a duty to undertake reasonable steps and measures uh, to uh, to make sure that something like this didn't happen. Um, so pro provide security, essentially. So for our listeners who are not experienced as either commercial property owners or even business owners, um, this sounds a little bit far-fetched, right? You have a, a, a salon, you're operating during the day, you're, you're doing uh, nails. Uh, and a terrible crime happens at a you know adjacent property um, that you have really no affiliation with, and it happens outside. What you know? What you know? This seems a stretch to hold the property owner liable. Um, what would be an example, let's say, in in a different case where I have a business that um, could reasonably be expected to? Um, ensure safety, that the crime doesn't happen around me. Are, are there cases where landlords are indeed held liable for third-party actions ha that happen in or near their property? Yeah, that's a good question. And the answer is yes, of course. So, you know, let's say that, uh, you know, Walmart, by example, you know, has a store and they know that out in the parking lot, um, someone is, uh, some group of individuals are, uh, uh, are doing stick-ups and, you know, holding holding their patrons, their customers up and stealing their merchandise or breaking into cars, you know, uh, and taking merchandise. If they, once they, once the store knows of that, it's happening in the common area, uh, then, hold on, they might have a duty, they would have a duty uh, to, uh, to do something, to provide some security. Um, so it comes down to foreseeability and 
and reasonableness of what's foreseeable. Uh, and that'll get us uh, a bit more into uh, into the into the way the law works here. Um, okay. Another, an, an even easier example, you know, is in the sort of non-criminal area. We can all relate to this, you know, that if um, Walmart or somebody knows that there's a location in the parking lot where there's a step down or, you know, uh, there's a, they know that the way it's designed, there are an excessive number of accidents, you know, that, you know, Walmart could uh, have an obligation to protect against negligence by doing a redesign. It gets a little harder when you get into criminal conduct because there's a third party who's involved. And the question then becomes entirely this foreseeability question. So again, as you say, foreseeability is saying, uh, relying on the fact it has happened in the past. So one would argue looking forward, it will happen in the future and that a reasonable, uh, responsible landlord, because it's foreseeable, has a duty, an, uh, an affirmative duty to, let's say, reduce or uh, prevent, the, you know, anyone getting hurt. Uh, in this case, you know, again, we're, we're focusing on the facts in this case, um, though there had been criminal incidents in the past, uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, Ms. Fan had only owned the property for three months, but it had been a, a, a tenant there as a business owner for longer. Where is that, you know, you're a judge, you're a you're retired judge, where does that line fall between, let's say, uh, drawing a, a line between what happened in the past into drawing a line what happens in the future? You know, where, where does uh, liability start to attach? Well, that's, you know, the, the uh, a co-tenant, you know, in a property has a lot less interest, you know, in uh, keeping an eye on what other tenants are doing in the property. They have no duty to do that, that's for sure. And uh, when you think about it, Ms. Fan is operating her nail salon on the, in this mattered, I think, in the decision, on the first floor facing the street out to the main street. The uh, city limits is operating on the second floor down below her um, and out back, and they're operating at night. You know, there's no crowd in there during the day when she's operating her business. Um, so when she testified, and she did, that she had no knowledge of any prior criminal activity um, at city limits or in the parking lot out back, um, that was uncontested. No one could prove that she had any information. And uh, there's another aspect of this, though, that you're probably going to ask me about, and, and that is, and that is when she bought the property, and they did argue this, uh, the plaintiff did argue this, that she had a duty to do research and to determine herself whether or not there had been prior criminal conduct. Um, so that turns into a duty to inform oneself. Um, and uh, we can certainly talk about how the court um, dealt with that. Yeah, I don't know if we want to introduce this idea, um, or maybe it's obvious, but she is a landlord, as you mentioned, and she'd only been, I think she immigrated in 2003, uh, started her business less than 10 years later, and then bought the property less than three years later. So an ambitious entrepreneur, but nevertheless, a, a recent entrepreneur, English is in her first language, and somewhat unsophisticated. Does that play into uh, this kind of idea? L let me just say, like, you use your Walmart story as, a, as an example, but if Walmart had taken over a property for three months, but had, you know, again, you use an obvious example, had some defect in the parking lot where people tripped and fell and broke their leg, they certainly would have had an obligation to investigate that. And they would have had an obligation and duty to, to reduce or mitigate the uh, 
the likelihood of someone getting hurt. Again, Walmart's a sophisticated landlord. Does that have a bearing on this kind of argument? Well, good point, and probably not. Um, <laughs> it, you know, under the law, yeah, I think that it would be a difficult uh, thing to uh, compare her to Walmart. Um, and so uh, I would say that um, that probably doesn't come into the calculus, uh, the tort calculus, you know, about what what would would have reason that that either Walmart or Ms. Fan knew or should have known. Uh, and it that goes to duty. Um, so if she knew of um, a defect in the parking lot, yeah, she would have had an obligation to take care of it. That's for sure. And she probably had a duty to inform herself about that, even in the three months after she owned the property. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Okay, now let's talk about the, the crime itself. Again, uh, for our listeners, the, 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 at, le at the very least, curious about how these things work. It, it, we've got a nightclub. It's a tenant, her tenant. Uh, it's serving drinks. I think they had like open mic night and, you know, it's a fun place, just people having fun. Uh, is the landlord responsible if, God forbid, somebody shoots somebody inside that that um um establishment inside you know inside the front door is the landlord liable in any way or is that a clear-cut case where it's it's the business not the landlord it, you know it, yeah, that it, would be gonna talk edge case here that would be very hard to see how the landlord would have liability um unless the facts you know indicated that the landlord somehow attract the landlord not the business attracted that particular customer um, and if that had continued, uh, you know, on more than once, then that would be a very rare case. And in fact, in the lease between Ms. Fan uh, and uh, City Limits, which she inherited from the prior owner, um, it made City Limits responsible for its own uh, internal security. So um, now that might or might not protect her, actually. Uh, again, the facts might indicate otherwise. And you know, tort law is all about allocation of, uh, you know, in, in the end, we all learned in law school that tort law is about compensating people uh, and whether we as society ought to compensate that person um, uh, or they should shoulder the loss uh, themselves. And and uh, that brings in all kinds of insurance concepts, you know, into the uh, calculus when you talk about tort law. So. Well, well, let's keep this uh, to this particular case whereby this person um, leaves a, um, a nightclub and then, you know, walks a few steps and is gunned down, as you say, execution style. Uh, to me, the I don't understand how there's any implication of either the property or the or even the nightclub, given that there right, seems right. to be, seems by my estimation, there's no, no nothing particular about a nightclub that that and, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what, what would the right word catalyzes executions. There's no nothing inherently violent. There's nothing you know. It's just a place where people congregate. The, their only affiliation is that he was there, not not that they and somehow encouraged or enticed or or you know whatever the legal term for invited uh, executions. Is that relevant here? Yeah, it is. It it and you your uh, your gut reaction leads you to the same place that the that the appellate judge and the trial judge uh, came out here and they said there was nothing um when Mr. Wright I think his name was was drawn was uh, he had no connection to the property other than that, than that he came in that evening and happened upon and these are in the facts um Ms. Mr. Scott uh that 
um, there was nothing particularly about that. This could have happened at the Walmart up the street, or it could have happened, you know, at the mobile station, you know, around the corner um, is really what the court found. And uh, so it, it was the uh, random nature of this that made it unforeseeable. And the court was unwilling to say that a landlord is responsible for something that's, you know, that random and unforeseeable. Um, so otherwise, as the court said, uh, you're making landlords guarantors uh, of the safety of people that are even on the edge of the property, not necessarily even in the property. Yeah, that, that's, that's not a, good. That's not good. It's pretty broad uh, application of of law and liability. So uh, I want to take a step back at the top of the um, our conversation. You talked about um, the 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 mission of Pioneer Public Interest Law Center. Um, you, in this case, filed an amicus brief, uh, uh, it, it, you know, supporting the case of the defendant, Ms. Fan. Before we go into what that amicus brief. Uh, said, what is an amicus brief? And you're, again, we're speaking, you're, you are with the eyes of a judge. What does, when you see an amicus brief, mean to you? So um, what amicus, you know, is Latin and uh, amicus curiae is the two word uh, uh, description of of when a, a an entity files a brief as a quote unquote friend of the court. That's what amicus means. And the, uh, and I have to add that in this instance, um, the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts actually issued a statement requesting interested parties to file amicus briefs. Um, that caught our eye. Uh, it always does. We watch for that because if the court is asking for a brief in something that fits our area, you know, then we're very likely to want to participate. Um, an amicus brief is is uh, generally intended to say things that perhaps the parties are not going to say because they're more limited to the specific facts and and the precise law at issue in their case. An amicus brief gives um, a, part, a party like Pioneer uh, PPILC an opportunity to provide um, policy information to the court about the implications perhaps, perhaps of ruling a certain way. Um, and that's a big deal, frankly. You know, I sat on an appellate court on the bankruptcy appellate panel. We would receive amicus briefs from time to time. Um, I even received some amicus briefs as a trial judge. That's not inappropriate. And um, I found them to be really useful because every judge wants to know, you know, what are the implications of my ruling? I, 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 uh, uh, it, it, it may not change what you have to do. The law may drive you to a certain ruling, but at least you go in knowing uh, that when I issue this opinion, it, it may have an untoward effect that wouldn't have occurred to me. Right. The uh, the other law, the law of unintended consequences. Right. You're you're in That's your uh, you're in your robes. You're in your uh, solemn place of of, of ruling, and uh, uh, but the world is the world, and you have to understand the implications of of the decisions you make as a judge, which are are you know it's a huge responsibility. Um, so uh, I want to quote then what I like. My favorite uh, uh, sentence from your your brief was the the first of the summary. I'm going to read from it, and uh, and I think this says a lot. Quote. Immigrant, immigrant entrepreneurs and property owners in low-income, high-crime areas should not be made to shoulder disproportionately the financial burden 
of our society's violent crime problem. Is is that the, that the that that's what got you to sharpen your pencil and write this this thing? Yeah, it really was. I mean, the um, what what really concerned us about this uh, is that uh, to uh, this 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 kind of decision could be a make it or break it problem for. Uh, immigrant entrepreneurs, but really also anyone who's trying to enter the um, uh, commercial uh, real estate market, um, because it's going to number one, if if it went a certain way uh, against her, it would expose her to potential massive liability. You know, a wrongful death case, a young man who who apparently had children. Uh, you know, it could expose her uh, to enough liability that she might have lost her plaza. And secondly, that um, it, she did have insurance, whether it would have been sufficient, who knows. Um, uh, and, but 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 maybe she never would have been able to purchase the property um, if the insurance costs uh, were uh, that much higher um, because uh, because the law, you know, insurance is a reflection of risk and the risk would have gone up dramatically, you know, for people like her um, to, to purchase uh, property like this. So I think that's important to talk about. Like you, you Miss Fan's case was very, very um, appealing, and uh, our sympathies are towards her. But you're not just after one particular case. You're looking for more generalizable principles, which say, okay, if we were to assign a liability to people, not just Miss Miss Fan, but others like her, aspiring, you know, current landlords and aspiring landlords, were we to attach these kinds of liabilities to all people like her, uh, the point of entry for all, uh, um, let's say, relatively unsophisticated uh, landlords and entrepreneurs with not a lot of resources, the bar would be set so high that it would have broad sweeping uh, implications. Say more about how, how, how would this case generalizably uh, apply to others? It will, will other, let's say, potential litigants look to cases like this to decide whether they should try to sue or not. Oh, most most certainly. You know, this would uh, cause uh, other plaintiffs' lawyers, you know, to look carefully at facts. You know, where someone is injured or or, or God forbid, killed. You know, um, uh, outside of a commercial property, um, and that you know you're you. you it's a, it's a, you know, a, a, a maxim, you know, uh, you, you want to sue the right person, but you want to sue the right person with the deepest pocket, you know? And so, um, so what it would have done, what it would do is it would have changed the calculus for assessment of the, the uh, insurance risk. And if I'm an insurer, I look at it and I say, well, gee, in Massachusetts, you know, you're sort of becoming a guarantor, even the intentional misconduct, the intentional uh, act of first-degree murder, uh, premeditated murder, uh, is uh, something that will be covered by the insurance uh, and expose the insurer to paying out, you know, large amounts of money. So, um, you know, how, how is that going to play out? Well, uh, uh, some of this is going to play out by insurers looking at the crime in the neighborhood uh, and saying, all right, this is a, that that's an increased risk given that even intentional crimes are going to be something that are insured. And so I'm going to raise the rates. I, I, uh, you also you talk about insurance a lot, but I'd also say um, 
this um, recent immigrant entrepreneur did not, I'm sure, pay for this building cash, though I don't know that. She may have. But I, I, I think it's more likely that she went to the bank to borrow money. Now, banks know that these kinds of you know lawsuits could mean essentially the end of their client's business like a giant sword of Damocles, you know, not for any single one, but for a broad population, I would think both insurance companies and banks, were they to be vulnerable to these kinds of suits, would, would effectively be re required to draw, I hate to use a term like this, redline a particular community before saying anybody who's brave enough to open a business in that community, because it has high crime, is not worthy of uh, you know, an affordable insurance uh, insurance policy, or really a reasonable loan, because they're so vulnerable to these, you know, essentially a lightning strike of premeditated murder that could happen in or near their property. Right. Well, that's a great point, and and um, on top of all that, and I think you're saying this, uh, but you know, certainly in my former life, I worried about things like this. You know, the cost of of finance there. You know, if I'm the bank. I'm looking at this and saying, again, interest is also an assessment of risk. You know, what's the risk that this person is not going to be able to repay it or just not repay it? So I would have, you know, said, let's charge, we'll have to charge Ms. Fan, you know, a higher, a point or two higher uh, on the uh, loan that we would make to her because the risk just went up. Yeah, um, th that, that, that's true. Now, in your paper, you go into great uh, detail about the profile of people who open small businesses in these, um, um, again, I, I don't know which, how we want to describe it, you know, fairly. It's, it's low income, high crime, you know, um, otherwise depressed uh, um, communities where there aren't a lot of businesses. And the few that are there are often and usually run by dedicated uh, uh, entrepreneurs who are more often than not recent immigrants. Uh, describe to our listeners, like, w why would someone choose to open a business or buy a property in a, let's say, vulnerable or high crime community? Well, first of all, because they could afford to, uh, you know, that's where this, uh, that's where um, she was already operating her business. Um, but it's not a it shouldn't be a surprise you know that in in um we'll say you know in in locations in cities and towns you know where uh where um the income levels are lower um you know we see a lot of ethnic restaurants we see a lot of uh uh this kind of thing you know hair salons and uh, uh, beauty salons, uh, massage, uh, those kinds of things in a location. Uh, and, uh, the, the reason is because, you know, it's an affordable place to rent, um, and the public will go there and patronize, uh, those, uh, businesses. Um, so, uh, I, I think that's really what you're getting at. Yeah, I, what I would say is there's much written uh, and debated about all these, you know, food deserts or, or places where that, that have been forgotten by you know the the, the mass media or, or or culture at large, uh, and but they haven't been forgotten. These places they've been uh, they are uh, the source of the the businesses, the goods and services of these uh, entrepreneurs who are often immigrants. They are the green shoots of of uh, livability, of convenience, of products. Uh, these are the sort of the, the bleeding edge, I hate to say, of the economy in these kinds of uh, communities. Were we to, in a sense, 
hold them liable for the ambient crime that occurs around their businesses, it would, I think, uh, so discourage those businesses that those those communities where they thrive would be even more um, uh, difficult to live in than they currently are. Is, is that, you know, maybe we're going way too far out into sociology land, but I, this seems to me intuitively obvious. I, I think that's 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 exactly right, and um, there are a couple of other important factors, and we we make these points in our brief um, that you know who 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 are employed you know by people like Ms. Fan you know usually other immigrants, so she's creating jobs for people that might otherwise have a problem because of language or you know or uh, whatever um, will have a hard time getting a job. So, uh, and this is a story of a business that was highly successful. So. Uh, that's that's exactly what um, that's exactly what we hope will happen. And, and as you know from reading our brief, we looked at a couple of other communities uh, in Greater Boston, uh, where uh, uh, as a result of so Dorchester is a good example, uh, where it was a much more of a high crime area, uh, and there have been studies to show that places like Dorchester have been a huge success in part in, in large part because initially because of uh, investment by immigrants uh, as they buy up locations to operate businesses, they buy the the, uh, the housing stock, uh, improve the housing stock, uh, demand that the school system get better. You know, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that uh, one of the pathways for a community to turn from a troubled and, um, you know, I've tried to be fair, you know, but high crime neighborhoods, you know, can transition. Uh, and certainly Dorchester is a great example of that. Um, so. Yeah, your, your paper talks about, you know, others like gateway cities like Lowell. I think they have a huge Cambodian community up there. Um, but again, these are people who largely out of necessity must accept the risk, but then in return for the risk that they accept, uh, there's the opportunity for the American dream. They can prosper, uh, as you say, become landowners, uh, successful business owners, and, and essentially become Americans. And what they give back is the valuable goods and services they provide to those communities that would not otherwise, you know, if we make their life harder, if we wait for Walmart to move into some of these communities, you've got a long wait because they're not willing to take the risk. Only these entrepreneurs are. So we're getting uh, close to the end of the time together. Uh, I, I've kind of already asked this question, but I want to ask it more directly. Um, as a way of background, um, the shooter in this case, I think, was convicted and got life in prison. Um, uh, the uh, City Limits Saloon was sued for, I think it was more than $800,000. And that, that the City Limits lost, uh, the plaintiff won that case. And that's why it wound up uh, with Ms. Ms. Fan, because I guess they didn't have the insurance to, to cover this. What do you think, um, now that this case has been decided for Ms. Fan, um, uh, for the reasons we, we mentioned, what will this case mean for the small business community in Massachusetts? And perhaps there's more generalizable in the country, but what will it mean for others in the future? Well, you know, it. it I'll put it this way. I, I think that it would have meant um, a lot had it gone the other way and not good things, right? It would have increased the costs as, as we've talked uh, about the, both from a financing standpoint, from a risk standpoint, from a, you know, what there was another amicus brief filed in this case by the Massachusetts Association of Realtors. You know, they were worried about increasing these costs and expenses to people that might want to buy in, 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 in more marginal, uh, communities. 
that would have hurt um, their business. Uh, and and they're frankly rooting, you know, for for buyers in that community. So um, what what it would have meant had it gone the other way is um, it would have increased the cost of uh, purchasing real estate, commercial real estate such as this, and it might have put it out of reach, um, you know, for um, uh, for for many people. Uh, and uh, I, the the line has been drawn, you know, uh, here, and that line is that um, foreseeability will mean um, uh, we will not include as a foreseeable risk that there will be an intentional um, murder, you know, or uh, probably in other intentional criminal conduct that is somewhat random. You said ambient. That's a word we used in the brief. It's an excellent word. That's ambient crime, you know, that you're not the guarantor against all ambient crime that happens to occur uh in your in the in the curtilage in the neighborhood you know of your of the real estate that you own it's a it's a nice win you know i think for uh in for uh immigrant investors uh in uh in in massachusetts it's a good it's a good result we applaud the court um for it you know when we started this pros this project and and thought about filing a brief um, we let people know and we started to hear from, you know, Vietnamese immigrant groups, Cambodian immigrant groups, uh, Brazilian immigrant groups, you know, all saying, what can we do to help? Because this is really not good, uh, not good for us. Um, uh, some of that came through, uh, came through our brief. Indeed. And I hope we don't create a false dichotomy between entrepreneurs and the community at large. I think it's win-win. When the when entrepreneurs and recent immigrants win, the community where they're thriving, their business is thriving, also wins. And we're, as you say, the, this case have gone the other way. It would have been a huge loss, of course, to aspiring entrepreneurs and current entrepreneurs. But the those communities were, you know, they, they've got the little bodega, they got the, the uh, food restaurant, they've got the nail salon. All If those all went away, it just would make huge pockets of our our commonwealth uh far less livable and and underserved so um i'll give you the last word um any anything else to say well i always <laughs> you know my our lives inform us on on these kinds of um policy and impact litigation matters and uh i i recall that my great-grandmother, when she came from Ireland, moved to New York City in Hell's Kitchen. And by the time she died, she owned a brownstone. And in the first floor was a bar. Not that she <laughs> operated, but a bar. And I'm guessing there were a few fists thrown in or outside that bar. And that wasn't an issue for my great-grandmother. But um, that was her foothold, right? That's how she was able to get uh, uh, to, to plant her flag uh, in this country. And this is very much like that. So anyway, she's probably watching this. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Well, th thank you for your time. I appreciate your, uh, the color that you can provide us as, as, as a, as a judge should, you know, you, 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 you've seen uh, both sides of these arguments on on both sides of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, I guess the, the desk. Uh, we really appreciate what you've offered here and the amicus brief. And of course, what, uh, PPILC is doing for, for the little guy in, in the legal world. Thank you very much for your time and joining me on Hubbong today, Judge Bailey. Great, Joe. Thanks so much for having me on. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's podcast, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. 
It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Habonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Habonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. Of course, we're grateful if you share Habonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.